At the, at the start of this chapter and at the heart of this passage is, in, is an idea that in one sense doesn't sit naturally well with us, but at the same time is incredibly good news. And that idea is this. God does not need us. And of course we know that and we have, we can tick those doctrinal boxes perhaps, but we have this tendency to think that it is about us. We make it about us. And so at the beginning of the chapter, you see King David starkly reminded of that truth. It's a, it's a gentle rebuke from the Lord. That there's something at the, the heart of the nature of our, our humanity that means we, we curve in on ourselves. That we view the world through a grid whereby we are at the heart of our reality, which means that, that God gets shrunk right down and we get magnified. It's almost as if that there's a daily turning of John the Baptist's prayer on its head. Do you remember John the Baptist's prayer? He must become greater, I must become less, and yet the tendency of our hearts is to flip it over. We must become greater our hearts say. He must become less. And that is the daily battle for us. Of course, bigger picture at the moment, that is rife in our culture and our society, particularly in the West. Increasingly, God is on the margins. There is, he is seen as an irrelevance, no need of him, a danger at worst. In the prayer of our culture, we must become greater, he must become less. And I think at the start of this passage and at the heart of it, you see David get that wrong inadvertently, and there's this gentle correction from the Lord, and then the Lord just blows David's mind, expanding his expectations and ideas of what's going on. And before we jump in, though, just to give you a, a reminder again to catch up what this book is about, that will be relevant for today and for the chapter particularly today. Um, but you remember, this is a history of God working among his people. When the writer wrote it, he is looking back through the ups and downs of God's people in such a way that they learn the lessons of history for the future. In such a way they can be hopeful. Do you remember they'd been removed from the land and then returned again? And they're asking questions like, well, is God with us still? Does the covenant still count still? Can we rely on him? Is he faithful still? How can we stop it happening again, they say. And so our writer is working his way through the history of Israel and yet zooming in on particular angles and aspects to give us hope, to show us how to be faithful to our Lord. And one of the emphases we saw last week, um, and we'll see it again, I think, is that, is that the way that we relate to God through faithful worship, through listening to him, through inquiring of him, as Matt was teaching the kids, really matters we can't just wing it. We have to do things in the way that he has specified. And so looking back, they see that God um, gave his people a land. And yet they're now back in the land because his covenant still remains. He is still faithful. He is still good. And so this chapter, chapter 17, really is one of the key chapters in the, the books of Chronicles, first and second. We might be more familiar with it from 2 Samuel 7, the promise that God makes there to David, if you remember that. But let's work our way through. First little bit, verses 1 to 2, we see this. We are not in charge. 
It props our pride, but it is such a danger when we think that we are vital to the purposes of God. That without us, God is not able to do what he plans to do. If you were on our day away yesterday, we heard the extraordinary story of Vlad and the way the Lord just popped Steve's pride because he had been at work in Vlad's life. He had given him the Bible. He had brought him from Romania to Liverpool eventually. We are not in charge. And so it sounds pretty innocuous, but David, looking at the palace he's constructed, we saw that action last week, he looks at the palace and he wants to build a temple for God. And it sounds good, doesn't it? It was part of his role as king to to lead the people in worship, in, in faithfulness, to lead them in godliness. Again, that chapter in Deuteronomy 17 is really important. Remember Moses, edge of the promised land, he foresaw the people asking for a king. And he says, okay, if you are to have a king, this is the kind of king you must have. It's going to be a king the Lord chooses for you. They need to be an Israelite. They they mustn't acquire much wealth, horses, silver, or gold. They, They can't have many wives. He is to write out all of God's law, says Moses. If you must have a king, this is the kind of king you must have. And so... David here wants to lead his people in worship. He wants to build a temple. He wants to lead in a way that God would be happy with. And so what's the problem? What's the problem with him wanting to build a temple for the Lord? It's not the idea of the temple. But again, it seems to be, in fact, similar to last week, David seeks to initiate the plan. As if... God was not in charge, and David was in charge. Now, we'll hear in chapter 22 more about why it's not to be David. His his hands are too covered in blood. He's too battle-weary for this job. But at this point, we're not told why. It's simply that David is not to do it. In fact, it's striking, isn't it, that once again the Lord was not inquired of. Nathan says, yeah, you'd be right. But he gets it wrong. And then what the Lord does is he blows David's mind. Because in David's mind, he is just talking about building a house for the Lord. And God says, no, 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 we're going to build a household from you. We're going to build a dynasty that will come from you for years and years to come. And this will be a dynasty that will bless the world. It will change the world, David. And we should just press pause at that point before we move on. And just consider that idea at the beginning that God does not ultimately need us. Because it is an unnatural thing. And it is a daily battle for us to remember that. Because we think it's about us. Often it's something we as Christians get wrong or indeed churches get muddled on. God didn't make the world because he was needy. He, he made all things. He owns all things. He has no needs as God. Indeed, David will write in Psalm 50, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. Or for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. We're not in charge. He doesn't need us. Now, of course, he will make promises to David, and he loves to use people like him and like us. He 
He loves to use weak and flawed individuals, and he equips us and he helps us, but he doesn't need us. And yet the problem is, when we shrink God, and when we think he does need us in some sense, that we are in the driving seat and not him, or maybe he's, to be honest, he's quite lucky to have us, to have a church like this, actually. God's doing all right, isn't he? But no, when that happens, then we've shrunk him. And maybe it means we can become far too anxious too easily. Because actually it becomes much more about us than about him. Or maybe that our problems tower over us again. Because it's become much more about us than about him. Maybe we feel too much of it hangs off us. And our ability or skills or success or whatever it might be. Whether in daily life or us as a church seeking to raise money for a building or whatever it might be. When it becomes more about us than about him, it probably means we're proud, and so it probably means we don't pray that much. But God does not need us. We are not in charge. You know, that's a great truth for me to remember as a, as a preacher, as a pastor. This is not my church. This is his church. He is in charge. He doesn't need us. And it's that foundational idea that then sets the passage going. God reminds David, God reminds us that he is the boss. This is his kingdom. These are his purposes, not ours. They humble us and they're meant to. And we need it. But the passage continues from verse 3 onwards. And God responds to this plan of David's. God's response, you see on the screen, remember, David, who needs who? Nathan the prophet, he had advised David to do what he thought best, but that night receives a word from the Lord, which he then passes on to David. And he recounts the message to David, and there seem to be two halves. Um, You can split them at verse 4 and then at verse 7, because this is what the Lord says. That's the kind of structural marker for us. And essentially, in verse 4 to 6, he says, I don't need you, says the Lord. And verse 7 to 15, you need me. So verse 4 to 6, I don't need you. God does not need a house. The the tabernacle was enough for him at this point. He has not needed a permanent house since he he brought the people out of of Egypt. He, He brought the people through the wilderness. He brought the people to the promised land. And has he asked them for a house? No, he's not. And indeed, David will not be the one who builds him a house. Again, we've said it in previous weeks, but I'm going to reiterate it. It's a truth that the Bible is always clear on. When it comes to how we relate to God, he is the driving force. We do so in a way that he has told us. He had given them the plans for the tabernacle. And so at this point, the tabernacle was the place of worship. And a temple is a nice idea, but at this point, that is not God's plan. If he wants a temple, he will ask for a temple. And when it comes to how we worship him, we we don't have room for much creativity or artistic license. God sets the agenda for how we relate to him, and he doesn't want a temple at this point. He sets the agenda. Which means for us, of course, we don't go to a building to worship God. There's nothing particularly special about this room, as you can see. 
But we worship God in Christ. He is where this fills out. He is the culmination of this. We worship him through Jesus, his death in our place. We are found in him. That is where guilt is removed. That is where shame is removed. That is where forgiveness comes. And if we go anywhere else to try and worship God, it it doesn't work. It displeases him. That is why Jesus would say, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. He's not a, not a master architect. It's his body. It's through him that we worship. And we can't go anywhere else. He sets the agenda, not us. And so verse 4 to 6, the Lord reminds Nathan, who speaks to David, I don't need you. But more than that, David, you need me. We are dependent upon the Lord. And so God sort of metaphorically points David back from verse 7 to 15 first. Remember my faithfulness in years gone by. And then he will look ahead and say, and trust me for what's to come. But 7 to 8, he looks back. David, you might be a bigwig now, but... Do you remember where you came from? Do you remember all that I've done for you? I took you from the fields, David. You were shepherding sheep. You were the youngest. You were the smallest. And now you are shepherding people, my people, Israel. David, I picked you. I chose you. I appointed you. And on the way, I have been with you wherever you've gone. I have cut off the enemies from before you as you've taken the land. David, you can look to me with thankfulness as he points him backwards. And then 9 to 15, he points him ahead. And I will provide a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them, he says. David, I I can look back and point you backwards and you can see what I've done. And therefore, when we look ahead, we look ahead with hope. Again, those are lessons that apply to us, aren't they? And it's a great discipline. If we're looking ahead and feeling stressed about that thing, whatever that thing is that's coming up for you, that meeting, that phone call, that exam, whatever it is, and we look ahead and it looms over us, and at least one of the ways we deal with that is we can look back and we can remember God's track record so far. And we are so forgetful. Don't you find that? Maybe God won't turn up this time. Maybe it was an anomaly the last 5,000 times that he did. (laughs) We can look ahead with hope because he has a perfect track record. So that is what he does with David at this point. Again, just look at the repetition from verse 9 to 15 of all the I wills. God will do these things, not you, David. And suddenly the Lord blows apart his ideas. I will, I will, I will, I will do these things. You can trust me. And it's interesting as well, it's not so much what God will do for David, but he will do it for David for the sake of his people, because he loves them. I mean, just scan over it with me. It's it's striking, actually, as you read verse sort of 9 through to 15, or maybe even verse 8 through, It's like he is reiterating the promises to Abraham. And he sort of magnifies them and expands them. And suddenly we get a glimpse of life as it was meant to be. We're we're reminded of these promises from the beginning. 
and he reworks them in light of David. So verse 8, David's name will be made like the names of the greatest names on earth. It's, it's before the internet. And yet he will be world-renowned, an international reach to his kingdom in some sense. Or verse 9, a land is promised, a home, and it will be a place of plenty and security. And we're, we're ticking off Abraham's promises, thinking, how? Huh, these are familiar. Or there'll be leadership and protection. There'll be a blessing for the people. And then verse 11 again, he focuses in on David. It won't be David building a house for God. It will be God building the dynasty for David. He, he reverses it. There's this plot twist suddenly. But then it goes on and it sounds more and more exaggerated. It starts off manageable and suddenly we're just thinking it doesn't quite work now. How can this be true? End of verse 10, the Lord will build a house for David so that when David dies, his kingdom will endure. Okay. But then God says one of David's sons will end up building a house for him. Well, we know with hindsight that's Solomon. We'll read that in weeks to come. But then verse 11 to 12, there's this weird gear change. Because his throne will be established by God forever. It's repeated then in verse 14 as well. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever, which sounds strange. Is, is Solomon going to live forever? How does that work? Or again, verse 13, there's this extraordinary intimacy between God and this son of David. So that his love will never be taken away from him. And of course, if we know our Bibles, we know that God's promise to, to David is partially fulfilled in Solomon here. His name was known among the nations. People flocked to hear his wisdom. He does build the temple in Jerusalem. But then it's only, of course, fully fulfilled later. Not in Solomon, but in Jesus. This is a promise about Jesus. One who would come and establish an eternal kingdom, a forever kingdom. That will always be safe and protected and good. And where there would always be provision. Or Jesus with such intimacy that at his baptism, God would say, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Or at the transfiguration, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Do you see that intimacy that's there? And I mean, think about it. How can God make a promise to David that there will be a king who will rule forever? Because ever since Genesis 3, the one's inevitability, the ultimate statistic is not taxes, but death. And for a forever kingdom to actually work, you're going to need a king who in some sense has dealt with death. And to deal with death, if we know our Bibles, you've got to deal with sin and rebellion at the same time. And then suddenly Jesus walks across the pages of Scripture. And again and again, people shout at him, Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And how is he able to have an eternal kingdom? Because his crowning glory is seen at the cross. And it's there that sin and death are defeated. 
And now, as we've already sung and proclaimed this morning, he is risen and ascended, and he is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, and one to whom we bow the knee, and one day everybody will bow the knee. And when we place ourselves in that big story, and when we see what is happening in God's plan now, then we know who we are. When we see God's promise to David fulfilled in Jesus, then we know that we can trust him. The rest of the chapter um, is basically David's response to God's promise. And it's a theological term, but it is wow. The right response from David to the Lord for his promises is just, my mind is blown. God, you are so good and so kind and so gracious. Or, wow. Again, it's worth just noting at this point, pausing, we have Bibles in our hands, which we so often take for granted. We have God's word to us. We can hear his voice. We can read of his extraordinary promises and his kindness to us. And so just to note, David's response to what God says is a really important thing as well. Because if you're anything like me, we can read God's word and then say a quick prayer and just kind of crash on with breakfast or whatever's coming up next in your diary. And I know this was an extraordinary world-changing promise directly to David. This is a key point in salvation history, of course it is. But what a great thing to at least attempt whenever God speaks to us through his word before we crash on, to just press pause and just to linger there for a bit and to relay those truths back to the Lord in prayer. Because that's how relationships work. And that's what David does. Have a look down from 16 to the end and you'll just see again a bit of the structure. Um, David does exactly what the Lord has done in that he looks back from 16 to 22, and praises God for all the stuff he's done. And then he looks ahead from 23 to 27, praising him for his promises to come. And you do see this extraordinary humility in King David at this point. There's almost a genuine confusion. His sort of jaw drops open. and Lord, why are you being so kind to me? Again and again and again, he describes himself as servant, a servant. So verse 17, verse 18, verse 21, verse 23, verse 27. Servant is not a popular word in our culture, but it's an appropriate word for us as we relate to to God and who he is, when we remember that we are not in charge. David knows who he is and that he doesn't deserve this. It's almost like this rebuke, verse 1 to 2, has hit home. Verse 16, who am I, Lord God? What is my family that you've brought me this far? Lord, I don't deserve you. We don't deserve you. There's this awe and an amazement that just drips out of David. Lord, you are incredible. You are extraordinary. And the world sees something of that as it sees what you do for your people. Let me read um, 
20 to 22, and I want you to catch something of the uniqueness of, of who God is and how he works among his people. Verse 20, there is no one like you, Lord, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel, to the one nation on earth whose God went out to redeem a people for himself and to make a name for yourself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt? You made your people, Israel, your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. He looks back to see what God has done and he praises him for it. And then he looks ahead, praying in light of what God has said he will do. So why will verse 24 so that God's name will be known as great forever? So that people will know who God is. God's saving works are revelatory works. Which means what God does shows us things about him, shows us what he is like. It's interesting, as an aside, I was listening to a talk recently that was critiquing some churches who talk a lot about what God has done and what God does. The story of salvation, the big picture of the Bible, perhaps, the unfolding of salvation history, the the revelation of God through history. But then... We don't necessarily talk about the God who is behind those actions and what he is like. We don't join the dots from from God's saving actions in history through to who he is, worshipping him for who he is. Did these actions reveal him? And so we can praise him because we know him through his actions. And it seems even that David's trust in God's promises are so great that he has such confidence they will happen that he he ends a verse 27 with assurance and hope. Now you've been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Lord, have blessed it and it will be blessed forever. These things haven't happened yet. But David knows what God is like. He has seen his track record, and so he has hope for the future. And so God is committed to blessing his people. That's what he's like. He's an ever-flowing, overflowing source of blessing. That is the character of our God that we see revealed through the story of salvation in the Bible. And it's right that as we finish, we just press pause slightly and marry those two things together for us as those in Christ, as the recipients of God's promise to David, fulfilled in Christ for us. Remember, God works in such a way that he is revealed. Which means, as he works in and through us, whether that be you in your life, your diary this week, the people you will interact with, the colleagues you sit next to you, the people on the bus or even us as a church, corporately together, how we engage with our local area in Oxford. It ought to be that we want people to see what God is like through the way that he works through us. God reveals himself through his actions, through his people. Which means that a cynical, skeptical, grumpy world looking in at us can't help but notice who our God is. 
you know, the little daily acts of life, the interactions with people, the mess and the frustration of life, the joys and the encouragements of life. Again, actually, Steve challenged us on this yesterday, if you were there. Our attitude to the way that we suffer and to hardships and to saying that we trust the Lord even and despite the hardships. The fact that we can know rest in the midst of the hardships. I mean, the people looking in and just don't get it. That they just can't understand where that supernatural ability comes from. And so we can point them not to ourselves, well, I'm just a bit stoic. No, we point them to him. And his equipping and enabling. His kindness. Or perhaps as, as the Lord enables us to love each other in the midst of those hardships. So people see the reality of God at work, who reveals himself through action. I guess it's our prayer that the cynics and the skeptics and the grumpies will end up at verse 20. And with David and with us, they will say, there is no one like you, Lord, and there is no God but you. Let me pray for us now. Father in heaven, there is so much in a passage like this for us this morning, for this week. We, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. Thank you even now that we get to model something of David's example as we turn back some of that truth to you in prayer as we respond to your voice and what you've said to us. Thank you that we are not in charge and you are. Thank you that with David we can be reminded of that. Humble us, please, when we put ourselves in the driving seat, when we can be overly proud, when we do think it can be about us. Forgive us. Thank you for your promise to David of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is the king forever. Thank you that he has conquered sin and death at the cross. And so his kingdom is a kingdom that will never end. His throne is all overall and it always will be. Thank you that we get to enjoy the promises that you have made through him as we are united to him by faith. And we long that you would reveal yourself through us to those looking in at the, the mess of our lives. The, the reality of our corporate life together. Thank you that you are a God who reveals himself. And so we pray that you might be seen in and through us. Might you give us opportunities even this week to point people to you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.